we've looked at this topic for the last few weeks, I guess apart from the missions conference last week, and we have seen that what Paul is grounding his teaching in, he's rooting his expo- exposition is, is both in God's creation and God's covenant. Those are the two things I want you to remember. And why do I want you to remember those? Why are they important? Because it's so easy to look at God's word and see it as kind of a grid, a checklist, a list of duties. Here's what the wife is to do. Here's what the husband is to do. And if you're single, you're going, maybe I'll go to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee right now. Wrong. On all three accounts, this is not just a checklist or a mere set of duties. But we have to remember there are two things that we have emphasized. The first is that God is creator. All relationships are rooted in the fact of God as creator. We showed how the purpose, the goal of marriage, is the fact it comes out of God's creational design. And his goal is not what the world says. It's not happiness. It's not pleasure. It's ministry. The Lord God took the man and he said as he put him in the garden and he basically said, I want you to take what I've made as my sanctuary, my temple, and I want my temple to go to the ends of the earth. But he said, you know what? It's not good that you do this alone. You are not equipped to do it by yourself. I've created you for community. The goal is ministry. And then God's creational intent is also his redemptive intent. Creation is moving now after the fall, after redemption, towards new creation. Jesus Christ came to usher in the new world. The new world, the new creation has been inaugurated. It's begun. Paul has already alluded to this in in his letter in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, when he said, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The great work of redemption is a reconciliation project. It's a reunification project where God is reunifying all things. One commentator, Peter O'Brien, he put it this way. He said, God's intention, his larger goal, is to sum up all things in Christ. And this includes the unity of his people within that vision. And in that light, the harmony of the Christian family is an essential element of this oneness. The marriage relationship is transparent to God's purposes on a larger scale. No other relationship within the family so fully mirrors God's purposes in the universe. In other words, the oneness of marriage mirrors God's purpose of making heaven and earth one. And if I can expand that application out, what did Jesus pray for the entire body of Christ? He prayed for oneness. He prayed for unity. Before going to the Garden of Gethsemane, the trial of the cross, all of that, he prayed that the church would be one, mirroring God's larger purpose to make heaven and earth one. God is building a new creation, a new world reunifying heaven and earth. In the apocalypse, he said to the apostle John, he says, I am making all things new. And Tim Keller talks about the implication of God as creator for marriage and relationships. And he says, 
If marriage is created by God, then when you enter into it, you enter in underneath the rules and regulations of the creator. Just like when you get in a car and you say, I've decided I'm going to put Hershey syrup in it instead of gas. You kill the car. If you buy the car and if you didn't build the car, it operates on the design and intentions and regulations of the creator, the inventor of it. Therefore, you have to submit to that or else you'll destroy the car. All of these things are rooted in God's creation intent. He's creator. But he's also covenantal Lord. We saw that the driving force behind our relationships is what the text says in verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. That is the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is not being terrified of him. It's not afraid. It's not dread. It is a sense of awe and wonder of the reality of the goodness and glory and love and beauty of Christ. And the definition of marriage is covenant. So marriage is instituted by God. It's God's idea. And again, as Dr. Keller goes on, he says, what is the structural root of marriage? Marriage is a covenant. And what is a covenant? A covenant is a binding, public, and legal contract or agreement. That's how God defines marriage. That's the essence of it. And he writes, I want you to realize, of course, that we live in a society that is completely anti-law and really hates this whole idea. In other words, I'm going to add, there is nothing more counterculture. You want to be utterly radical and revolutionary? Look at marriage as a covenant rather than something that completes you or makes you happy. The popular view is that of pursuing your own happiness, your own pleasure, your own autonomy. Marriage is a covenant, and it rests upon and is based upon covenantal priority and covenantal commitment. So in other words, if God is creator and God is covenant Lord and marriage is God's idea, it makes sense then that there is an order, that there is a structure to marriage, an order that reflects, that is a mirror reflecting the movement of history from creation to new creation and from covenant to new covenant. And if we look specifically at the vocation of marriage, I want us to look at it from two perspectives. I want us to see that God is painting a picture and he is supplying a power. Rather than a list of duties, I want you to see that God is laid out a canvas of our relationships and he's painting a picture. And when we look at what wives are to do and what husbands are to do, and we mirror that in all of our relationships because we're going to look at wives submit to your husbands, but didn't we just see in verse 21 it says submitting to one another? So in other words, we're all to be submissive. Wives, you're to be submissive twice. And it says husbands, love your wives, but didn't earlier on he said walk in love? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And earlier, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, love one another. So yes, husbands have the vocation of love, but we are all mirroring the unity and the oneness of relationships in our love. So this picture, while it's applied by Paul specifically here to the Christian family, is applicable to all. For we're all, we are all that canvas, we are all... What did Paul say earlier in the letter? We are God's workmanship. 
He's writing a poem of your life. He's painting a picture of your life. So let's dive into the picture and the power of marriage and of relationships. And as we look at the picture, here's the first thing I want us to see. And this is very, very important. This section is the beginning of a section that runs from verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9. And throughout this entire section, and it deals with three sets of relationships. Husband and wives, children and parents, workers and their bosses. But I want you to notice something. In each one of them, they have the same dignity, the same worth, the same equality, the same value. They are created completely equal, yet different. If you're taking notes, I never do this, but if if you're taking notes, I want you to write something down. How about that? I'm going to help you with your outline for a second, because this is that important. I want you to write down this creation principle. And the creation principle is called diversity within unity. See that? If I make you write it down, you're going to remember it. Diversity within unity. That is the reality of marriage. It's the reality of the church because it is rooted in the reality of God himself. See, how does God reveal himself to us? This is why I said this is a creation This is a reality principle. God reveals himself to us how? Three in one, diversity in unity. Three persons equal God, one God, the same in substance and power and glory, yet they exist with three functional roles as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Equal power, equal dignity, equal worth, equal value, yet within the one Godhead. And so within the unity of equality, men and women, children and parents, workers and bosses, we have diversity of roles. We have diversities of expressions and living out equal persons with different roles, which means here's our first application is do you submit to the reality of creation? Do you go with how God as creator and Lord of the world made the world? Or do you resist it? Do you fight against it? Do you try to buck up against it and go, I don't really like this submission idea. I don't know what it is yet, but I've heard nasty things about it. I'm not sure what it is, but I can't possibly like it. And husbands love your wives. I don't really know what that is, but mm, isn't my home my castle? Shouldn't I, you know, don't I deserve to relax at the end? I don't really know what it... It's a creation principle. Do you go with the tide of God's creation and the reality of diversity within unity, or do you fight against it with your own ideas? So that's kind of an overarching... That's the canvas. Now let's paint the specifics of the picture. The first part of the picture is addressed to the wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself his savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let's notice there are gender roles. They do exist. Now let's correct some misconceptions. First of all, this picture is not one of losing one's identity, nor is it, as the world so confidently asserts, two autonomous individuals living together for their own happiness. 
Let's remember the concepts of creation and covenant that everything Paul says is rooted in. That creation and covenant is what guides the flow of history, especially redemptive history, as it moves towards new creation and new covenant. And the first part of the divine order is for wives to voluntarily, out of reverence for Christ, submit themselves to their husbands. Now, what does that mean? Peter O'Brien comments, he says, fundamentally at the heart of submitting is the notion of order, that God has established certain leadership and authority roles within the family, and submission is a humble recognition of that divine ordering. So let's recognize, first of all, that submission is not a loss of your personality. It is not an oppression. It's not being a doormat. It is a mindset. It is a humble mindset that recognizes that God is a God of order and he has set a certain functional order within the family. He sets a functional order within the church as well. So O'Brien continues, he says, authority is not synonymous with tyranny and the submission to which the apostle refers does not imply inferiority. See, I'm afraid that's what so many fear. So many go, if I submit, I'll lose my freedom. It'll be stifling. It'll ruin my, I won't be liberated. How can I live like that? Now, I want us, that leads to a more fundamental question, a more basic question in our Christian discipleship. Take submission off the table for a second and put any obedience issue on the table. And I want you to ask yourself a question. What is it that will lead to my freedom and liberation and human flourishing to me living the way I was created and built and redeemed to live. Is it obedience to God? Or is it taking matters into my own hands and doing as I see fit, what makes sense to me? We need to renew our minds. That means have a proper mindset as to what leads to human flourishing. What will lead to me being a fish in water, so to speak, and not a fish out of water. See, we said that the goal is not happiness, but do you want to truly be happy? Live unabashedly, unashamedly for God. God built you. You are in a covenant relationship with God. He knows what will lead to your human flourishing. And see, and I want you to look at one other thing. See, let's put submission back on the table for a second. And I want to prove to you that it is not about inferiority that we're talking about the function of leadership structure or roles. Within the Trinity, you also have this subordination within the Trinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is Paul's great resurrection chapter, where he's talking about the end of the ages. He is talking about the new heavens and the new earth and Jesus Christ as resurrected. And we read this in verses 26 to 28 of chapter 15. He says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, referring to God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God who put all things in, subjected, in subjection under him that God may be all in all. And friends, 
The word subjection there is the same Greek word as the word submit in Ephesians chapter 5. So in other words, again, as a commentator comments, he says that the verb submit, to be subordinate to, can be used of Christ's submission to the authority of the Father shows that it can denote a functional subordination without implying inferiority, without implying less honor and less glory. So wives, I want you to think about this for a second. What kind of company are you in? Oh, only the second person of the Trinity, who after the last enemy being death is subjected to him and he defeats it, will hand the kingdom to the Father, be in subjection to the Father himself, will accomplish. That's why he said in the Gospel of John, my, the, my will, my food is to accomplish the will of him who sent me. I subordinate myself to accomplish everything, every last jot, every last tittle, everything that the Father sent me to accomplish. That God may be all in all, heaven and earth reunited again. What a plan of God. And instead of a list of duties, I pray that we see it within relationships leading us to awe and worship of God. And verse 23 gives us the ground or the reason for this structure and order. For it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. And how is that headship expressed? Notice verse 25, Paul doesn't say, Husbands, live your headship. Rule over your wives. He never says that, does he? Look at the painting of the picture. And he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So much so does Paul not tell the husbands to rule over your wives or express your headship over your wives. He says, love your wives. And how has Christ loved the church? And in just a second, we're going to see exactly how Christ loved the church. In this self giving, life-emptying, sacrificial way, the husband's movement and energy towards the wife is always to be. Men, I want to ask a couple of pointed questions, a couple searching questions for you. Do your wives know that you love them and care for them and cherish them and nurture them like that? Do they feel safe with you? Do they feel that your energy that this is the way you're expressing headship. It is to nurture them, celebrate them, treasure them, cherish them. For that's how Christ loved the church. Now, where are we going to get the heart and the power? See, this is the picture of oneness. This is the picture, by the way, of leadership in the church. We are to mirror God's bigger purposes. Where do we get the power for these relationships and the power for marriage? See, if the picture is grounded in God as creator and in God as covenant Lord, we need to expect that the movement from picture to power is also going to be grounded in God as creator and God as covenant Lord. So for us to grow in our vocation, the vocation of marriage, the vocation of relational living, the only way is to trust in the power of God's goodness and promises. We need to see and trust our covenant God. 
See, when we read, look at verse 25, and when we read, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that was in fulfillment of God's covenant. Because God gave, Jesus gave himself up for us as our substitute, not as our example, but as fundamentally our substitute. In other words, as covenant Lord, he was putting our shoes on and taking upon himself the curse of the covenant. And I think perhaps nowhere shows us this quite like Genesis 15 in the story of Abraham. See, in the story of Abraham, if you have Bibles, turn back to Genesis 15. If not, I'm going to tell you the story of Abraham. Okay, in the story of Abraham, God made a covenant promise to Abraham. He says, I am the Lord, and I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. And Abram said, oh, sovereign Lord, how can, I, how can I know that I will take possession of it? How will I know? So in other words, Abraham's a normal human being. I believe, yet I don't believe. I believe, yet I doubt. Yeah, I believe, yet I need reassurance. So he asks for a sign, a token, something to see by which God would give him assurance of his promises. And before we get too hard on Abraham, I want you to remember something. This is exactly what God does for us in the Lord's Supper. What does he do? He gives us a sign, a token, a seal of his love for us. So just like he's about to give Abraham a sign, a token, a seal, he does the same for us in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Abraham simply wants encouragement, and what he got was absolutely astounding. Abraham received this covenantal commitment in a very strange ceremony. That may seem strange to us, but Abraham knows exactly what's going on. Because the text says, the Lord says to Abraham, I want you to bring some animals here. A heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham goes, I know what's going on. And he brings all these things to him. He cuts them in two. He arranges the halves opposite each other. And Abraham is told to prepare these animals, cut them in half, and place the halves opposite one another because he's about to enact a ceremony that's enacting a covenant. And see, there were many types of covenants. So, for example, you had covenants where the king of a powerful nation would enter into a binding public agreement with some of his smaller nations, his vassals, and he'd promise them blessings like, I'll protect you from invaders. You promise me loyalty or fealty. And at the conclusion of this public agreement, they'd have a ceremony where it'd be customary, where the parties would together, the great powerful king, along with the weaker vassal, they would walk through these animals together. And it was a dramatic acting out of a curse that was called a self-maledictory oath. And here's what they were saying. They're taking an oath and they're saying, if either one of us break this covenant, may it happen to us. May I be torn to pieces like these animals. In other words, if I break this vow, if I break this oath, if I don't keep my word, if I don't fulfill this covenant, may it happen to me what happened to them. Throughout the Old Testament, this is well known. Jeremiah 34 says, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. But in Genesis 15, the 
the covenant God makes with Abraham, something absolutely astounding happens. Only one party walks through the pieces. In Genesis 15, verse 17, we read, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire part with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. One party, not Abraham, he's completely passive. One party. Who or what is the smoking fire pot or blazing torch? In Exodus 13, we read, By day the Lord went ahead of them in what? A pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. In other words, the blazing torch and the smoking fire pot foreshadow the pillars of cloud and fire which would guide the people in the wilderness being symbols of God's presence. Do you see what's going on here? One commentator put it very well, and that is the one who would give the law was here showing that grace does and must come first. For this is a one-sided covenant depending on God alone. God is saying to Abraham, and he says to us, if I don't fulfill my promise of salvation depending completely on me, completely a work of grace involving absolutely zero from you. May it happen to me what happened to these animals. And one writer put it, God is saying I would rather be torn apart than see my relationship with humanity broken. The relationship that I promised to establish through Abraham's descendant and friends is fulfilled ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ who came to earth to subordinate himself to the will of the Father, to accomplish that will, to do that will perfectly, to taste death, to die for lawless, rebellious, covenant-breaking people. This is as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this is the movement of husbands towards wives. This is the energy that we are to have, a constant self-giving that only occurs as we see and taste and trust and avail ourselves continually to the goodness of Christ. You only grow by availing yourself of grace by entrusting yourself to divine goodness. You only grow as you avail yourself. As Paul wrote to the Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the power of relationships. That is the power of marriage. You don't grow by trying harder. You don't grow by making more of a commitment. You grow by surrendering to goodness and grace. Let's pray. Lord, may you teach us to surrender, to submit, and to love. I pray that we would surrender to your goodness and to your grace. I pray, Father, that we'd surrender to your love and live out of that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.